Welcome to In-House Legal, where we cover a variety of issues pertinent to the general counsel and in-house legal departments of small, mid-size, and large organizations. Join host Randy Milch each month as he discusses the latest developments, trends, and best practices for this very busy and often complicated area of law. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, my name is Randy Milch, and I'm the host of In-House Legal on the Legal Talk Network. I'm honored and happy to have as a guest today David Leach, the Group Vice President and General Counsel of Ford Motor Corporation. In addition to having held for nearly a decade one of the great in-house jobs in the world, David was a Supreme Court clerk, a partner in a major national law firm, and has offered up distinguished government service. David, welcome to In-House Legal. Thank you, Randy. Good to be here. So, David, I wanted to take a few minutes and go over, so for our listeners, uh, your background. Uh, You've had uh, a very, very interesting route to the general counselship, one that, uh, interestingly, has passed through both the major law firm and government service a number of times. But you started off at UVA, and then you clerked on the Fourth Circuit. Tell me about uh, your decision to clerk and whether you think that's a decision that you, even today, you think has served you well. Oh, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. Of course, the decision wasn't solely mine. I had to find a judge who would take me, but I was fortunate enough to find a an outstanding Fourth Circuit judge, J. Harvey Wilkinson, who was on the faculty at UVA when I was in law school there. I had actually decided not to clerk, and then when he was confirmed right at the beginning of my third year, he was uh, looking for clerks, and many of my classmates had already landed clerkships, and uh, he reached out to me and asked me if I'd be interested, and it was one of the, one of the best things that, uh, that ever happened to me. And then you went on to clerk for the Chief Justice after Judge Wilkinson, right? Yes, that's correct. He actually wasn't the Chief Justice when he selected me or when I began, but he became the Chief Justice uh, a few months after I began clerking for him. And then what was your decision after that to go? You went off to the Justice Department through the Office of Legal Counsel, which is could be seen as your first stint in a general counsel's office. Uh, describe for us what the OLC does and how you found your time uh, in that part of your government service. Sure. Actually, first spent uh, about two and a half years at, at Hogan Hartson in Washington before I went back into government service in the, in the Justice Department. So clerk went to Hogan for a couple of years and then went to OLC. And, you know, the Office office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department has an outstanding reputation and has enjoyed it for a long time. People who have headed the office have included folks who've gone on to the Supreme Court in William Rehnquist and Antonin Scalia, folks who've gone on to be Attorney General, and of course, a lot of other distinguished people. Um, and it really is the it's the general counsel's office for the for the Justice Department, but also more generally for the executive branch of of government, and provides really high level advice on constitutional issues and statutory issues for the executive branch. Uh, resolves disputes or disagreements between executive branch agency. Provides um, a lot of counsel to the White House Counsel's Office and uh, works on some, some really fascinating issues. It was a great place to spend a few years. 
And you, uh, it sounds like you get a you get really a bird's eye view on on all sorts of different executive branch problems and and issues. Do you count that as a as a sort of a beginning for your understanding of public policy and other other types of issues that general counsels face of corporations when they try to deal with the government? It was the beginning of that, but you know the Office of Legal Counsel operates in a little bit of a rarefied air where they don't the office doesn't really give policy advice or consider you know, sort of public relations. It's a little bit of a of an ivory tower in that the office tends to write opinions for others in the government saying what the legal options are, but then doesn't itself really get involved in kind of what is done with those legal options. Obviously, not everything that's legal is something that's good policy or, you know, will go over well in the, in the public. So it was a little bit more isolated than you know, the typical general counsel's office, either inside or outside of government, um, where you have to consider all sorts of implications of your legal advice. But it, it certainly laid the foundation for being able to distinguish, you know, what is legal advice and what is kind of the rest of the of the advice that people in positions like ours uh, have to give. And so it was great training for what I went on to do in retrospect. I didn't realize it at the time, but it, it was a really good foundation. So uh, after OLC, you went back to Hogan. What was your practice at Hogan like? What were you concentrating in? So I worked on um, appellate litigation. Um, one of the things that I discovered really through through clerking and my early practice, and then particularly OLC, was that I really I like to write and I like to think about sort of more purely legal issues more than I liked kind of the factual development of cases, taking depositions and things like that. So I had an opportunity to go back to Hogan and work in an appellate practice with the person who had, had been at Hogan with me and became the principal deputy solicitor general when I was at OLC, uh, John Roberts, and uh, you know, of course now the chief justice. Um, and so we went back to Hogan roughly at the same time at the end of the Bush 41 administration and uh, worked closely together with a number of others on building uh, an appellate practice at Hogan. So you did that at the end of Bush 41. Uh, so I guess it was the, you built your practice during the Clinton years. But then in 2000, you made the determination to go back into the government. So how did you think about, how did you think about that after running a successful, I'm sure a successful appellate practice? What drew you back into the government in Bush 43? Well, I think one of the really great things about practicing law in Washington is that there are opportunities to go in and out of government throughout your career. And it was one of the things that I, you know, I really enjoyed the opportunity to have a, a varied and, and richer experience by, you know, moving in and out of government. And I think it, you know, it made me a better lawyer by having those different experiences. You know, I also love public service and I, I think you get a lot more responsibility, you know, often in, in the government than you can get in private practice. And I also thought that you know, while I, I really enjoyed the appellate practice and it was a great part of my career, I also thought that someday I might want to, uh, you know, get into more of a general counsel type job. And, you know, those things are easier to get in the government than they are in the private sector. And so it was a great experience for me to think about managing an office and, you know, sort of learning how to be a, a manager of what in the in the FAA was a couple hundred lawyers spread around the country. So when did you take the reins of the general counsel job at the FAA, the chief counsel job there? 
June 2001. So you had a short run-up to, uh, as so many folks in the administration did at that time, to you know a, a massive crisis uh, in 9/11, and in one that particularly affected your executive branch office, the FAA. What was the crisis atmosphere? How did you did you have substantive knowledge of the FAA law before you went in there? Was that something you had practiced or had the opportunity to write a brief about uh, in private practice? No, I wouldn't claim any particular expertise in the FAA's area of regulatory practice. I mean, I certainly knew, you know, administrative procedure, you know, the kinds of things that would be the fundamentals of practicing in a in a government agency. You know, and the beauty of the kinds of jobs that I've had both there and since then and, you know, that that you would have had at, at Verizon and, and elsewhere is you have a lot of experts working with you. And so you don't necessarily, you can't be an expert in all the different areas of law that might come across your desk and you have to learn how to trust and rely on people who have a lifetime of expertise in those areas. So I didn't have any particular background in aviation law or, you know, matters that would have been the routine work of the FAA uh, prior to 9-11. Of course, you know, nothing that happened on 9-11 in the days and weeks that followed it really involved that kind of core FAA, you know, regulatory administrative law docket. Everything was different in the days that followed 9-11 because it was a situation that, frankly, was unanticipated. And so describe, if you could, you know, the kinds of issues that you were facing at that point and how you had to maneuver, you know, what were the kinds of advice categories, obviously, that you were giving the administrator and in in the issues that you were facing? What were the legal issues you were facing? I mean, there were a number of, of things in the immediate aftermath that, you know, first involved getting the airspace reopened, because you recall on 9-11, the FAA brought down every plane that was in the air and, you know, with unbelievable compliance by the pilots and crews, basically, you know, without having a lot of explanation, we're told to land and they did. Uh, But then how are we going to reopen the airspace? What are the security measures that we have to implement? Not a lot of legal issues involved there. This was just more policy, but, but then quickly we pivoted to, I would say, two main legal issues. One was how could we quickly supplement and increase the the number of air marshals that were flying on planes in the U.S. And I was asked by the Secretary of Transportation to work on that process, and essentially it involved um, identifying federal law enforcement officials from around the government who could receive some quick training on the particular security environment inside an airplane and be assigned to fly as, you know, temporary air marshals while that force was was stood up more permanently in the months after 9-11. The second major thing was the transformation of the security at airports from private contractors hired by the airlines to, you know, what we now know as the TSA. And, you know, that involved legislation that involved a big effort to, you know, manage the contractual relationships through to from private contractors to government agency. There was also one other really compelling issue in the days immediately after 9-11, which was the government need to provide terrorism risk insurance for the airlines because they all had their policies canceled, you know, sort of immediately after 9-11. And they all were 
unwilling to fly unless they got some insurance and the government stepped in quickly and stood up an insurance program that we were involved in setting up. Did that require special legislation to get the insurance uh, program up or was that pre-existing authority that was simply utilized? No, I think we needed special legislation and uh, it passed, you know, very quickly because, you know, the environment was obviously much different than than whatever normal is in Washington. Yeah, there was quite a bit of unanimity uh, for at least a little while right after 9-11. It was uh, it was quite a different atmosphere. So I, I guess one of the things I'm interested in is, you know, in a general counsel's office, uh, particularly one like Ford's where you have a global organization with a lot of people, I think one of the things you can be sure of is that as good as your people are, somewhere in the world something's going wrong someone is making a misjudgment or a mistake. And so there's always in the general counsel's office uh, a bit of crisis management going on. How do you compare the way the government handled a crisis? And with all, you know, I don't mean to overly compare something as horrific as 9-11 with a, a simple corporate crisis in comparison, but do you note any differences in the way government approaches crisis management than what you have seen in the private sector? Um you know, I think it depends on the kind of crisis that you would have in the private sector. I mean, you know, some crises in the private sector are very much like the kinds of crises you would face in the public sector in that they involve very public, the white hot spotlight of, you know, publicity and negative attention, right? And, you know, just to think of, of examples from from my industry, you know, the GM ignition switch matter, the recent Volkswagen emissions matter. They felt, it was particularly GM because it's sort of in the past, felt very much to me like the kind of thing you would face in the government in a sense of, you know, your principal client being called up to the Hill, a lot of press attention, you know, skits on Saturday Night Live, you know, just the, the whole panoply of things that you would have in the government when you're involved in a regulatory issue that gets the attention of the Hill and of the press, I think it can be very much like a government crisis or, or scandal. You know, then there are economic challenges within companies that can feel very different because you're dealing, for the most part, with the markets and the analysts and, you know, disclosures and financial results that, you know, have a lot of very specific rules and measurements associated with them. And I think in a government crisis, you don't tend to have as many of those kinds of of metrics involved. And do you find that the principles and the theories that, you know, we've all put together about how to lead in a crisis, how to keep people calm, how to keep people focused on the issues, how to be present so that people understand that, you know, that, that everyone's together, does that turn out to be very much the same, both in the public and the private sector? I mean, the actual leadership and, and grappling with the, you know, with the endless hours and the hard issues and the personal decisions that may have been made seem it's pretty much the same? I think they should be treated similarly. I think that human nature is, you know, doesn't change because you're sitting in a corporate suite or sitting in an executive branch agency and the kinds of things that work well in those environments, I think, translate between the two. I think you, you may tend to see different dysfunctions in corporate and in public life, but when they're functioning well, I think they're very similar. David, I want to go through some of the things that you've had to face at Ford, and 
and ones that sort of straddle the line. I, the first that comes to mind, of course, is the is the fiscal crisis that we experienced back in 2008, I guess. Ford was in the interesting position of seeing its competitors bailed out by the government. How did you guys view that? I know that it was probably, you know, jocularly, we called GM government motors. But I would assume that from the interior, there's actually a mixed set of, of views about whether bankruptcy would have been better, bailout would have been better. From a competitive angle, how did you see that? Well, you know, of course, they were first bailed out, and then they they did go through bankruptcy, so that, you know, both GM and and Chrysler. It was an interesting time, um, because obviously, there are a lot of mixed feelings about your, you know, your competitor, you know, going through an ordinary bankruptcy, you know, would have been one thing, but then kind of the public role and and the amount of money that was dedicated, people had a lot of mixed emotions about it because on the one hand you know we made no secret of the fact that we needed gm and in particular and also chrysler to not sort of dissolve overnight in some undisciplined way because we share a lot of suppliers there's a lot of you know infrastructure in common in terms of the supply base and and others in the industry and had they gone out of business and you know in some sort of undisciplined way, our, we would have had many of our suppliers would have gone out of business and it would have brought the whole industry down, including Ford. So we needed a process that worked through all that. You know, at the same time, I think people, you know, were concerned that we were going to be put in a uh, position where we weren't able to compete because they were, as bankruptcy is supposed to do, they were getting a clean slate. You know, their debt was being affected, their labor contracts were being affected, their you know, all all their litigation, for example, um, dealerships, they had lots of freedom to do things as is the appropriate role for bankruptcy that we didn't have. And so people wondered, you know, are we going to be at a permanent, you know, competitive disadvantage because we didn't have that sort of cleansing process, that fresh start that they had. And so there were a lot of questions along the way from members in the management team, and I had to take a number of opportunities to explain to them this is what bankruptcy is all about, and we don't want to go there. Um, we don't need to go there. Um, there are certain, definitely disadvantages to it, and most importantly, you know, our stockholders are. We have a fiduciary duty to them to protect them, and we're able to do that. So we we should continue to do that. We also got in in a way that we didn't necessarily expect. We got a huge amount of goodwill, public goodwill, from not receiving a government bailout, and that has continued to. Uh, I think, affect the consumer's view of, of Ford Motor Company in the marketplace, which has been a big help. Yeah, it was a very interesting time. I recall us discussing this when, when it was going on. Uh, I think I told you then that I went out and bought Ford stock because uh, it was not getting a bailout. So You weren't the only one. <laughs> we had a lot of people say they were buying the stock or you know taking a new look at our products and you know they were proud of us. And we tried not to toot our own horn about that because it's not really the style of the company, but people did notice. Yeah, it was an interesting time. And you mentioned VW uh, in the last section. Now, obviously, it's a delicate matter, but I, I guess I'm most interested in the, this is one aspect of pervasive regulation for the auto industry is the is needing to meet, you know, pollution guidelines, mileage guidelines. Uh, I'm interested in it from sort of the compliance perspective. How are you sure 
in any large organization that people are meeting the rules, but they're not cheating to do it? Yeah, it's a question, you know, you wake up every day and ask yourself as you come into the office, how can we be sure? And I think you said earlier something that's a lot like what I've said to myself and to other audiences, um, and that is, you know, there are roughly a couple hundred thousand people that work for Ford Motor Company, and then there are, you know, multiples of that doing business in the name of somehow related to Ford Motor Company around the world. I, I can't ever be sure that one of them is not at this very moment doing something they shouldn't be doing in the in the name of Ford Motor Company. But what you can do is try to have, first of all, a, a real ethical culture. Um, and that, you know, the overused phrase, tone from the top, but it's important and it matters. People take their cues from their leadership. And so from the CEO to the heads of business units to the, you know, each manager, I think, has to have a real ethical behavior and message. And, you know, so you have to propagate that throughout the organization. You also obviously have to have great processes and controls in place to make sure that, you know, you, you are complying, that when, when the test is run, that it has the right certifications and the right checks that you have you know, differentiation of duties and all the kinds of things you'd want for good internal controls. And then, of course, um, you know, internal auditing and your external auditor to the extent, you know, they're getting involved and just making sure that, you know, they they can play their role and and that you respond well when you find problems. You know, you don't shoot the messenger. You, you know, you let people bring bad news forward. You let people, you know, make whistleblower complaints and have anonymous hotlines and all the things that you, you know, you can set those things up, but if people think they're hollow, they won't be effective, but you just have to constantly reinforce that we really do want uh, to do things the right way. And again, it's not foolproof, um, but it's, I think you just have to continually work on the message and the behaviors and the checks. Does internal audit report to you uh, at Ford? It does. Yes. Um, this is somewhat unusual. unusual. Yeah. How, what's the? Is that an historical artifact, or is that something that you asked for and and were given? I was given it. I, I didn't ask for it, but um, I think the thinking was that you know most of what internal audit does involves financial controls. They do a lot of other things, but you know a big part of their diet is is reviewing the financial controls and having them report the CFO created a, you know, a little, I wouldn't say it, it was in response to any particular tension, but structurally, it looks better and may be better to have somebody who's not the CFO, you know, supervise that office. Of course, they really report to the audit committee, but for administrative purposes, on a day-to-day basis, they report to me. And uh, everybody's been very comfortable with the way that's worked out. It's an interesting change because, you know, we see that audit and compliance sometimes shifts back and forth between the general counsel's office and the, the CFO's office. So it's interesting that Ford offers an example of audit being under the general counsel's office, and it's, a, it's not a bad idea. Although at times at Verizon, there would have been no way that I wanted another compliance organization reporting to me. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. You know, you mentioned the GM switch and the, and the VW. Does this cause you, despite your confidence in, in Ford's culture to, you know, when something like that happens, do you go back and kick the tires right away? Do you go back into the office and say, I want someone to go kick the tires on this one just because 
I know I'm going to get asked about it at the next board meeting. Well, we might not say kick the tires because before ah. I got here, Ford had a big issue with Firestone tires and Explorers. But <laughs> we, I know it. the expression that you're using. But um, no, we absolutely, uh, you know, we're constantly examining the external environment and seeing what's, you know, what's going on with competitors and regulators and, and questioning, you know, are we doing the right things? Do we have the right processes? Can we know that we have compliance in this area? I think the real trick is can you, you know, look ahead and see, you know, what am I not thinking of? What are the areas that, you know, it's easy once your competitors get in trouble for something or the regulator says, okay, now I'm going to start emphasizing this, but what are the areas that we should be looking at that, you know, haven't quite made it to the front yet and making sure that we've got great processes and controls in those areas as well. You know, David, let me turn to away from Ford in specific to some more general topics. I mean, if you were advising a young person today, and you probably probably get asked this all the time about whether they should go into go to law school or not, what do you tell them? Do you both about whether to go or not? And if they go, how they can best make a career of it? I mean, I've been asked this question a lot through throughout my career, as I'm sure you have. And one question I always have is, you know, where are you going to go to law school? I think, you know, unlike what I think may be true of the medical profession, you know, where you go to law school can make a huge difference. And I'm not, don't mean to sound like a law school snob, but if you're in a, you're going to the, you know, the bottom tier of law schools, it's just a really tough market out there. And you have to ask yourself, you know, are you going to law school you know, because you like the education and it's, it can be interesting and useful in a number of different environments. Or if you really want to be a practicing lawyer, um, you just have to have a, I think, a very realistic view of kind of the opportunities you're going to get from different places. That's the marketplace that we're, we're in right now. I also think, you know, I didn't know anything about the practice of law when I went to law school. I didn't have any lawyers in the family. And I got very fortunate to, you know, have put together a great career. But I think, you know, it's, it is a career that it can be very challenging, obviously it can be very demanding. Um, and so you have to go in with your eyes wide open to that, but there's still great opportunities for people who have the, the skill and the interest and, you know, the capacity to, to contribute. And uh, I think for the right person, it, it remains a great profession. So you, you spoke about your career a little bit in the past tense. I, it's been announced that, that you are going to retire from the general counselship of Ford at the end of the year. So I wanted to talk just for a second about succession planning, because when you and I discussed this, um, you know, uh, you put together a, a slate and, and, and an internal candidate was chosen. Describe for us, if you can, how you went about making sure that there was an internal candidate and, and, uh, and how you feel that's going to go. Well, I'm very excited that the company has chosen an internal candidate and, you know, we have a, a really strong group of people here at the company. And, uh, you know, I think it's one of the key roles of, of a senior executive of the company to try to give the company some really good candidates when the time comes for succession. We spend a lot of time as a management team talking about succession planning. We meet um, pretty regularly and go over plans and we and we talk about what the development needs are of the various individuals who would be in our succession plans and so you know this has been a it's a very odd thing it's it, i hadn't been exposed to this before um you know law firms don't do this um the government certainly doesn't do it but you know 
early on in my tenure, I had to start thinking about who was going to be in a position to succeed me and what they skills and and uh, experiences they might need to be put in that position. And so it's a long and careful process. And fortunately, we had a number of um, of really good candidates, and the and the board has made and the uh, management team have made an excellent choice. And I'm, I think it's going to be great. So, David. You know, let me offer my congratulations on a stellar career, and I want to thank you very much for for spending some of your some of your remaining days, a little bit of it, on the phone with me this afternoon. It's been a great and hugely informative half hour, so thank you very much. Well, thanks. It's been fun to talk to you about these things, and uh, I, I enjoyed it. And I want to thank all of you who have listened to our podcast today. For any of you listeners who would like more information about what you've heard today, please visit www.legaltalknetwork.com, or you can also follow us on iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. And that brings us to the end of our show. I'm Randy Milch. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for another great episode of In-House Legal. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.